morning is from Romans 4, uh, verses 23 and 25, 23 through 25. Hear the word of God. But the words it was counted to him were not written for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that you would be with us this morning as we gather around your word. We pray that you would speak to us, that your Holy Spirit would find us uh, where we live. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'm assuming that most of you know that Hannah Kearson is retiring from her role as the leader of our band. She's been with us for 12 years, and she has a f- two more weeks, three more weeks, three weeks, two weeks. All right, so we're still looking for her replacement or, or her successor. Uh, if you know someone who could step into these very large shoes, you know, be, be in touch with us. We've been interviewing people, and we've got more interviews coming up. Um, but uh, Hannah is stepping down from that role. She will just become a normal member of the church, and we'll have more time to take care of her family and things at home. Um, so let me talk about our reading this morning. This past week, a, a certain young man, 10 years old, came to the session to give his testimony of faith and to ask to be baptized, which is what this church is all about. He had been sitting in one of these pews this past Easter Sunday, and on that day, the message of the gospel became real for him. It became personal. On that day, he was born again, and that was the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, this boy was raised in a Christian family, So he knew about God, and he knew about the Bible, and he knew about Jesus, and he knew about the gospel for as long as he had known anything. But it wasn't until this past April 1st that this general and generic knowledge became for him personal and specific. You can know about Jesus and still never have met your Savior. You can know about the gospel without having ever experienced personal freedom and renewal. The people that the Apostle Paul was writing to in Romans 4, 23 through 25, knew all about Abraham, and they knew that the Bible said that Abraham's faith had been counted to him as righteousness, That was a very familiar passage from the book of Genesis. But what they might not have gotten hold of was that what the Bible says generally and generically about Abraham can also be personally and specifically true for them. Paul writes, But the words it was counted to him were not written for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. Paul goes on to explain that faith will be counted as righteousness to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trans- trespasses and raised, for, and raised for our transgressions. What was true of Abraham, that he was righteous in the sight of God, 
that he was in a state of grace, that he was right with God and heaven bound, not because he was holier than average, but because he believed God when God spoke to him. What was true about Abraham can be true for us. Abraham's faith, not his good works, were credited to him as righteousness. And Paul is saying that the same thing can be true for you and me if we believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so the fundamental question that each of us faces this morning is, am I believing that biblical truth in a personal and a specific way for myself. Am I believing that Jesus was delivered up for my trespasses? Am I believing that Jesus was raised for my justification? Am I believing that about myself? Because if I'm not, then I don't yet have saving faith. I can believe that Jesus existed. I can believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I can believe that Jesus died for sinners. I can believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. But until I believe that His death and His resurrection apply to me, that He died for my sin, that He was raised for my justification, then you don't yet have saving faith. Let me remind you of question 21 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which I mentioned last week. In response to the question... What is faith? The Heidelberg Catechism answers, True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true that God has, uh, all that God has revealed to us in His Word. It is a firm confidence that not only to others, to people like Abraham, but also to me, God has granted Forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace. Only for the sake of Christ's merit, this faith, the Holy Spirit works in my heart. As Paul writes, but the words it was credited to him were not written for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. That's the crucial lesson this morning. Now, let's... Just take a quick review of Paul's letter to the Romans. We've been preaching in this book since January. Let me review what we've covered up to now so that we don't read this passage out of context. Paul did not establish the church in Rome. We don't know how that church got started. But we do know that that church included both Jewish and Gentile believers. And then in chapter 1... Verses 16 and 17, Paul announces his great theme. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is written, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul then makes it clear that the pagan Gentiles need this salvation because they are sinners in the sight of God. And he makes it clear that religious Jews need this salvation because they too are sinners in the sight of God. And he sums up his analysis of the human condition by saying in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in the same boat. Paul isn't singling out any person or any group. He says that all people have the same problem, himself included. 
which is what makes the gospel such good news for the whole world. Simply stated, sin is our failure to live up to God's standard of righteousness. God's law reveals that standard to us. God made us. He expects us to live a certain way. And because He is our Creator, He has the right to expect that of us, both for His glory and for our good. Yes, our lives are better and the lives of people around us are better when we live by God's law. Where adultery and theft and violence and lying are absent, people and families and communities flourish. God's law is not oppressive. It is liberating. But all of us are born into the same situation. Pride and greed and envy and gossip and anger and self-centeredness prevent us from living the way that God wants us to live. Prevent us from living the way that's actually good for us. And that creates another problem. Namely the wrath of God. Now listen carefully. Because this is an important point, And it's one that perplexes many kind-hearted people. God's love and God's wrath are two sides of the same coin. And you don't get one without the other. God's, God loves what God wills. And God's will for us is best captured in what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, 22 and 23 where he writes, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. That's what God wants to see in us and in the world. When we have the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and in our communities, our lives are good and sweet and rich and God is thrilled and pleased with us. But God hates... And God displays his wrath toward anything that opposes God's will. And that's what we call sin. That's best captured in what Paul calls the works of the flesh. In Galatians 5, 19 through 21, where we read, Now the work of the flesh is evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. You'll recall, of course, in Romans 1.18, at the very beginning of this letter, when Paul is just setting up his argument, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. God's wrath is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness because God loves godliness and righteousness. God hates sin because God loves holiness in the same way that we hate cancer because we love life. God's deep and abiding wrath against sin is a sign of his deep and abiding love of goodness. And God's deep and abiding love for us is what caused him to absorb his own wrath in his body on the cross. The crucifixion of Jesus is the wrath of God displayed. Against our sin. And Jesus' willingness to endure that wrath is the love of God displayed for us. God's wrath and God's love 
are two sides of the same coin. And the crucial lesson for us today from Romans 4, 23 and 25 is that we receive the gift of God's love by faith in Jesus Christ. I loved hearing the testimony of the young man who came to the session this past week. His story resonated with my own experiences as a lad. Like him, I too was raised in a Christian family. My parents were missionaries. I grew up in the church. The first time I remember reading that magic moment when the marks on the page actually become words that you know was in church with a hymnal in my hands. My father tracing along with his finger under the words as we sang, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. I grew up in a Christian environment, which is a tremendous blessing that not everyone has, but it wasn't until I was in the fourth grade, a year older than the young man who came to this session this past week, it wasn't until I was in the fourth grade that the light went on for me. Oh, I realized suddenly. All of this stuff in the Bible, the stories about Abraham and David and Jesus and the woman at the well, all of the truths about sin and the cross and redemption and the love of God, all of those things that I believed because I drank them in with my mother's milk, all of those things not only apply to the people in the Bible, they also apply to me. It was an eye-opening revelation in the fourth grade. As Paul writes... But the words it was counted to him were not written for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours. I finally understood, all in a flash. And as soon as I understood that these things applied to me, I also realized in that instant that I had a serious problem. I had been contentedly living the way self-absorbed and absent-minded boys live, content to know about David and how he sinned, content to know about the woman at the well and how she sinned. But now I realize that I too was a sinner. And I knew that God's wrath was in store for sinners. And so with a holy fear, I went running for relief, for protection, for salvation, for cover from the one I had been told could save me. I went running to Jesus. And I went into my father can still picture his office in our house in Bonterre, Missouri, a little lead mining town south of St. Louis. And I asked him, what do I have to do to be saved? I didn't really know enough yet to be able to figure it out for myself. And while I was wild with fear, my father wasn't at all alarmed. And he explained to me that I didn't have to do anything. That is, nothing except to... Ask Jesus to forgive my sins and to be my Savior and Lord. And so we prayed together there in his office. And that was the day that I was born again. That was the day that I became a Christian. Now please understand me. Before that day, I was a child of the covenant. That's for sure. God had planted me in a Christian family. And it had given me every advantage to be able to know his word. But it wasn't until that day... That the Holy Spirit brought to life and applied to me individually all of the truths that had been planted in my heart and mind like little seeds over the course of many years. It's our practice on the session when examining people who have come to ask for baptism or to join the church to first share our testimonies of faith. 
We go around the table, one elder after the other. Tells the story of how God's grace became real in their lives. And all of the stories are different because all of us have had different experiences in life. We've come from different places. But the common theme in all of those testimonies is that there comes a point when what we have learned generally and generically about the word of God becomes very personal and very specific. The light goes on. And it's no longer just about Abraham anymore. It's now about me. If you've had that experience, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Many of you can point to that moment in your life. And when the light goes on, the theologians use the term illumination for that transitional moment. When that light goes on, it is the Holy Spirit who does that work. Until God does it, we... Just keep reading the story of Abraham as though it's about Abraham and not about us. But when that moment of illumination comes, then look out. Because everything changes. From that moment on, there's no going back. When the Holy Spirit illuminates our minds, several things happen simultaneously. At the same time, we comprehend the awesome majesty of God, His holiness, His power, His purity. And... In that same moment, we also comprehend our own sinfulness, our unholiness in comparison, our willful disregard of what we've known all along was right. And when we comprehend that gap, when we see ourselves for the first time the way that God's justice sees us, we tremble in fear. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so it is. Theologians call that fearful awareness the conviction of sin. It's one of the things that the Holy Spirit does to us and for us. But thanks be to God, He is merciful. He doesn't leave us in that dreadful state, that state of fear. When He illuminates our minds, He also shows us His grace and mercy and He invites us to repent of our sins, to turn away from that old life and to run to Jesus in whom there is grace and forgiveness sufficient for even the worst sinner. John Newton, the English slave trader who came to Christ late in life, wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, which captures this two-pronged work of the Holy Spirit. He writes, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and the same grace my fears relieved." Fear and relief are two sides of the coin of conversion. John Newton, like many Christians here today, or like any Christian here today, knew about Jesus long before he knew Jesus. And it wasn't until the Holy Spirit illuminated his mind that the change occurred and the wretched sinner, deserving nothing but God's wrath, became God's treasured child. You can know about Jesus and still have never met your Savior. You can know about the gospel without having ever experienced personal freedom and renewal. Now some of you here this morning might be in the preparatory stage of faith. You know about Jesus. 
Maybe you've known about him for years and years, but somehow the light hasn't yet gone on for you. The reality of your own sin remains theoretical. The love of God remains hypothetical. My counsel to people who are in that preparatory stage, and we all have to go through it if we're going to come to Christ, my counsel to people in that preparatory stage is to keep at it. Keep exposing yourself to the Word of God. Keep attending Christian worship and enjoying Christian fellowship. We call those the ordinary means of grace. God gave us His Word. He created the church and Christian fellowship to bring His grace to people who are still on their way to faith. It doesn't happen all at once. And it can happen at any stage of life. So stick with it. And never hesitate, by the way, to pray to God and ask Him for the faith if you feel like you don't have it. That's always a good prayer. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, as one man prayed in the Bible. Now, some of you here this morning might be in the pivotal stage of faith. Some of you might sense that the pieces are beginning to come together and the light is dawning for you. And while everyone's experience is different, for a lot of people, the time of the pivot can be a very uncomfortable place to be. I know it was for me. It's uncomfortable because it's humbling. It's uncomfortable because it requires that we own our past mistakes that we'd rather forget. It's uncomfortable because it involves a change. And truth be told, some of us would rather rather die than admit that we're wrong or to change what we've been doing for so long. There is, however, no way forward with God if we are unwilling to admit our need for God, if we're unwilling to change course. You know the story of the rich young man who came to Jesus and asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And when Jesus told him, and when that young man understood that it would require a real change in his life, he went away, unwilling to make that change. If you are in that pivotal stage of faith, if you feel like the Holy Spirit is stirring in you, my counsel to you is to not quench the Spirit, but respond to it in faith and in obedience. Bite the bullet and say, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to Jesus. The cross before me, the world behind me, however you want to put it. My counsel is that you act on the promptings of the Holy Spirit while you can. Because the Bible makes it clear that the Holy Spirit won't wrestle with us forever. This is the time when you are feeling those promptings to talk with someone about what's going on inside of you. And please know that you're in a safe place here. The mission statement of this Church declares that we are a fellowship of sinners. Everyone who is a part of this church has acknowledged the error of their ways, their need for God, and has turned from an old life and entered a new life. Everyone here will support you as you make that pivot. Come see me. Come meet with some of the elders and ask the simple question that I asked my father. What do I have to do to be saved? We'll talk to you. We'll pray with you. And you can leave here a changed person, your burdens lifted, a new life, an eternal life in front of you. I invite you to do that today. Let us pray.
Father God Almighty, we do honor you and we do adore you. And we thank you that the words that were true of Abraham can be true of us. That what you revealed in Scripture isn't just abstract truth, but it's truth for us, for our lives. I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to wrestle with us and call us and draw us to Christ, who is our hope, who is our Savior. Lord, give us the faith that we need this day. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.